first person to find it, you can call out the page number. 933, thank you very much. You get one sweet later. Uh, and on the inside of your... Um, one of these handouts that you got is it came in there as an outline of where we're going. A few months ago, a Saudi man who works for the Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice in Saudi Arabia cut his daughter's tongue off and burned her to death for becoming a Christian. The girl heard about Jesus through the internet. We've been praying about some of the persecution in Orissa recently. Here are some photographs. Children out here, that's good. Oh, I can't see them. Oh, you can see them. Numbers of people killed for being Christian. Government says 35. The Catholic Church says at least 60. But more than 70,000 Christians have been forced to flee their homes and live in refugee camps. And this is Gail Williams. Gail worked as an aid worker with a Christian aid organization in Afghanistan. And last Monday, she was shot dead. A spokesman from the Taliban made this statement to the press. This woman came to Afghanistan to teach Christianity to the people of Afghanistan. Our leaders issued a decree to kill this woman, and this morning our people killed her in Kabul. Friends, if you think this is bad, then think again. I'll give you a statistic. The more Christians killed through persecution in the 20th century than all the previous 19 centuries combined. Makes sense, there are a lot more Christians in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries. Let me give you another statistic. More than 165,000 Christians are killed each year for their faith. 165,000 per year. That's an average of 452 per day. And if you take it by average... Then by the time you finish listening to the sermon, then another 14 of your brothers and sisters have been martyred. And it's not a comment on the length of the sermon. What is God's response to these blatant attacks on his people? Will he turn a blind eye? Or will he come in judgment? Will he avenge his people? Will the forces of evil always have their own way? Those same questions haunted the people of God more than 2,000 years ago at the time of Obadiah. Before we look at it in detail, let me tell you some of the background of the book. To say we don't have much biographical information on Obadiah is a slight exaggeration because we don't have any at all. The name Obadiah simply means worshipper or servant of Yahweh. There are 13 Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament and the Obadiah who wrote this probably isn't one of them. It's a very common name nowadays. Nowadays nowadays it's not common, but back in those days it was a very common name. 
Right? Lots of people call that kids Obadiah. Like an ancient equivalent of Andrew or something like that. The book is first and foremost a prophecy about Edom. So before we study it, let's take a quick history and geography lesson of Edom. Right. First of all, geography, you look at the map, and you can see Edom uh, is under, is at the bottom, okay, under uh, south of, of Judah and, and Israel. And you can see from those little squiggles there that the terrain is mountainous. Uh, that's all we need to know about geography. History now. The people of Edom were descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob, both of whom were sons of Isaac, uh, who was the son of Abraham. God's promises made to their grandfather Abraham. Uh, Esau missed out on the promises. The promises flowed down Jacob's direction. Edom was already a nation in the 15th century when the Israelites were saved from Egypt and they refused to allow the Israelites to pass through their territory on the way to the promised land. King David, in about 1000 BC, conquered Eden and remained under the control of Judah until about 850 BC, when it rebelled, set up its own king, and defeated an army from Judah which set out to get it back into line. Edom and Judah coexisted until the Babylonian army marched into Jerusalem in 587 BC and destroyed it. And that is the event that probably triggered the writing of this book of Obadiah. Okay, happy with the history? Okay, let's get into the book. Now, the vision of Obadiah opens with an announcement of war. Chapter 1 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Obadiah is broadcasting a cry from God to call upon the nations to go for combat. He's summoning them for battle. Open hostilities. And the nations are going to do what he says. See, God is in control here. He knows, in fact, he decides who is going to attack who. That's good to know, isn't it? George Bush is not in control, and Vladimir Putin is not in control, and Osama bin Laden, if he's alive, is not in control. God is in control. And God here has decided that Edom is going to be invaded. And if God decides that they will be invaded, then well, what hope have they got? If you ask them, they would say, well, they were fine, thank you very much. You see, they thought they, thought they were fine. They thought they were secure, they thought they were great, but God was going to cut them down to size. And God says in verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. These people, this nation, thought they were secure. They, they built their towns high up in the mountains. Uh, for example, the magnificent fortress city of Petra, which you can see maybe that size a little bit better. Okay? You see pictures of that, um, and you can see them, uh, you can, if you can, Look really carefully. You might be able to see how they built the, the the city into the into the into the mountain, into the rock, the mountain. And archaeologists tell us these cities can only be reached by passing through narrow gullies in the rock formation, like the one pictured here. 
so that can be easily defended. If the enemy has to go through a really narrow path in order to reach you, you just keep on attacking them at that point, right? where they can only fit a few men at a time, and, and they've had it. So with their man-made fortresses, their natural protection, 3,800 feet above sea level, they felt as secure as an eagle, soaring above its enemies on the ground. They had the top of the range national defense system. And they felt safe. But what did God say? Verse 3 and 4. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there... I will bring you down. They were proud, they were protected, but they hadn't counted on God, and God said that He would bring them down. I will humiliate you. I will come in judgment against you, and when that happens, it will be complete. You know, when thieves come and steal your things, they take as much as they can carry, and that's it. Or, in a vineyard, grape pickers come, and they pick grapes, but they don't obsessively take every last grape. No, they, they take the easy ones and they leave the bitsy ones for the poor. But with Edom, it's not going to be like that. Verse 5 and 6. If thieves come to you, if plunderers by night, how have you been, how you have been destroyed? Would they not only steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sold out. God is going to completely ransack them. There won't be anything left. They can hide their treasures in the mountains, but God knows where they are, and it's going to be looted. And if they thought their possessions would buy them securities, they would be wrong, because, well, possessions can't buy security, can they? Those of us who have been watching the financial markets will know that. It all looked so stable a few months ago. Look at it now, there's no safe haven. These guys have stashes of hidden treasure. They've got foolproof defense system. And none of those things could save the Edomites from the living God. But what about friends? What about allies? Would they not come to Edom's aid? Would they save them? Well, in an awful twist, these allies, even these friends, would end up being God's instrument of judgment. Verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Even their allies and their friends have turned against them. What about their, their own wise men, their, their learned ones? What about their leaders, their, their decision makers, the, the people they respect? What about their soldiers, their warriors, their defenders? Verse 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed of Taman, another name for Edom, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. That's pretty awful, isn't it? They will all die, their treasure will be pillaged, their friends will turn to enemies, 
Their own wise men destroyed, their warriors terrified, they'll be slaughtered, the judgment will be complete. But why? Why this awful judgment against Eden? What have they done to deserve such a fate? The answer is their sin. Sin against Judah, the people of God, who are also their relatives, their flesh and blood. God explains in verse 10, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Well, what did they do to Jacob? Jacob's the ancestor of, of, uh, of all the people of Judah and Israel. What did they do to them? What was their violence? Well, it was all about events that happened on something that's called the day. And it's an expression that occurs eight times in, in four verses, verses 11 to 14. And this day is used in the Bible for the time of God's coming in judgment. See, we know in 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians after a terrible siege. Many of her people were killed, many went off into exile, her buildings were destroyed, her temple ruined, her treasures were carried off to Babylon. That was the day for Judah. It wasn't a literal day, it probably went on for months, but it was a day in the sense of time, the day of their destruction, the day of their disaster, the day of their trouble, the day of the Lord, because God was the one who was bringing it on them. And on that day, when all those terrible things were happening to Judah, when she was being attacked by outsiders, when she was put under siege, when she was being destroyed, what did Eden do to help them? Nothing at all. Verse 11. On the, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Edom was, was like a foreigner. Edom with all its might just stood back, didn't help. Let the enemy destroy its brother. Oh, that would have been bad enough, but it was worse. Not only did they fail to help, but they gloated over Judah's mess. Have a look at verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. This is sibling rivalry gone too far, isn't it? It's like when we were children and we were secretly pleased that our brother or sister got into trouble. Did you ever do that? Huh? Or when you're at college and your friend fails an essay and makes you happy because he didn't do so well in yours or when your colleagues get told off by the boss and it makes you feel good because you look better than her. Well, that's pretty sick, isn't it? An appalling thing to do, to gloat over the misfortunes of others. But the Edomites enjoyed seeing the people of Judah suffer. That was bad, but it gets worse. They decided to go down and have a look and join in and Pick up a few quick bucks out of Judah's misfortune. Verse 13. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. 
Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. It's a horrible thing to do, wasn't it? Go and try and loot and get some money out of it. The worst is yet to come. Some of the people of Judah managed to escape the Babylonians. But as they fled the cities, they found Edomites at various crossroads, ready to kill them or hand them over to the Babylonians. Verse 14, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. What an evil lot these Edomites were. What a wicked thing to do to act in this way, especially to your own flesh and blood. And what a foolish thing to do it to the people of God. You see, God cares for his people. Sure, they were under his judgment, but they were still his people. And those who touch his people touch the apple of his eye. And he will punish you. This prophecy is not a call for revenge. It's not a call for arms for Judah to go and get back at Edom. And they couldn't have done it anyway. They were, they were in exile in Babylon. But God would sort the Edomites out. He would deal with the enemies of his people. And we see this principle just as clearly in the New Testament as well. We don't need to take revenge because we leave it to God. In fact, we are to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, but unless they repent, they are in trouble. In 2 Thessalonians 1, we read that God will pay back trouble to those who trouble his people when Jesus returns. Remember when Jesus appeared to Paul on the, on the road to Damascus? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? God takes it personally when his people are persecuted. He has a policy about those who persecute his children. He says, you touch my people, I break your neck. I've talked about some of the horrible things that happened in Arasa. The people who were doing this, well, the people that shot that, that lady, the people who attacked God's people, the people who hate God because they hate his people, kind of trouble or doom will they be in? Surely they will be destroyed. They might attack Christians, they might raid churches, but do you think for one moment they'll get away with it? I don't know how God's going to bring his judgment, whether in the here and now or when Jesus returns. I tell you what, I'd rather be a defenseless Christian in a refugee camps in Orissa hiding from evil men and a powerful leader of a militant group out to destroy the work of God in his country. Because you cannot win when you mess with the living God. Edom messed with God's people and they were going to face the consequences. For the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment which came for Judah, it came for Edom as well. Within a few hundred years, Edom ceased to exist. Archaeologists think that many of the Edomites were driven out by 
in the 5th century BC by the Arabs, their former allies. We know that in 312 BC, the ravaging of Edom by the Arabian tribe called the Nabitians was complete. The individuals who survived were the ones who fled to Judah and eventually became part of the Jewish people. Edom as a nation was finished, never to appear again. But Obadiah, he doesn't just address Edom. At this point, his prophecy begins to, to move up a key. And while he's still speaking to Edom, he's also talking to the nations of the world. And the punishment of Edom is a picture, a representation of what God is going to do to all the nations. As so we go on to verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Notice the perfect justice God uses in his judgment. When the day of the Lord comes, no one will be able to complain they've been treated unfairly. Retribution will be carried out meticulously. Perfect justice will be done, and perfect justice will demand God's punishment. Verse 16. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they have never been. Those who drank on the holy mountain, the holy mountain is Zion. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's where the Jerusalem is. And as Jerusalem received God's judgment, so will the nations. And God's judgment is pictured as a drink, a cup of God's judgment. And nations will drink and drink and drink and drink of it until they're drunk and they fall into a stupor, a fatal stupor. They will drink the wrath of God continually and become as if they had never been. That is, they will die forever. And yet in the midst of that universal judgment, there is one place of safety. There is one place where there will be salvation on that day. And it's in verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. I said a moment ago, Mount Zion is the hill on which Jerusalem was built. It came to stand for Jerusalem itself. Let me show you some pictures to show you why. There's a picture of Jerusalem uh, in modern times. Um, and you may be able to notice that there is a... Can you see a hill in the middle of it? It's up on the hill. Right. Um, the, on the left half of the picture, it's higher up. And then you see that where, where the, at the top right, the top there, is where the, the, the temple used to be, where it's now a mosque, down with the rock. Uh, it's much clearer when we see a picture of Jerusalem in the time of, 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 of David. Um, it's not as developed then. Um, but there you can see it much more clearly. There you've got Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem with the walls around it, sitting on top of the hill. Can you see the hill? All right, now that's the Mount Zion. See, so Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. And so Zion, Jerusalem, the holy mountain, that's the, uh, those are like synonyms. And in verse 17, it says that in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, shall be holy. Now remember, as Obadiah wrote this, the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. 
And yet he says, this is where deliverance will be found. This is where salvation will be found. That is where you go escape, to, uh, to, where you go to escape the big judgment on all the nations. Now, sure, the Edomites who fled to Judah many years later were the ones who were surviving the Arabs, but, but this is not that. This is a picture of something much greater. Just remember this. When God judges the nations, the only safe place to be is on Mount Zion. We'll see the significance of that in a couple of minutes. The judgment on the nations is pictured by the judgment of Edom, and the judgment will be complete. Verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. There is a picture of total destruction. No survivors in the day of the Lord. So you've got it. When the day of judgment comes, there's salvation in Zion, and complete and utter destruction on God's enemies. And the result? Well, we'll see verses 19 and 20. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall produce the land, shall possess the land of the Philistines. Philistines, those who possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, they shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess the Gilead. In other words, those are all the, those are all the areas around Israel. So Israel, uh, coming out from Mount Zion, possesses the whole area. Okay? The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of the Negev. So, what I'm saying is God is going to bring his people together again, north and south, and he'll re-establish them in the land and make it even bigger than it was originally. That kind of happened under the Maccabeans in the second century BC. They, these places came under Israelite control for a short time, but, but yet, just more to it, isn't there? This is a picture of something greater. A picture of the fulfillment of all God's promises. A picture of, of God's people in God's land completely. In God's place. And verse 21 finishes off the picture. Saviors shall go up Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God's people be in God's place under God's blessing and rule. It's the way it's meant to be. They'll reign under God from Mount Zion over Edom where God's enemies and theirs once seemed so strong. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Kingdom that comes by judgment and salvation. The kingdom that is established on the day of the Lord. When the New Testament opened, people were still waiting for this kingdom. Waiting for deliverance from their enemies, for the reversal of their situation. When Jesus came in, his message was this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God, the kingdom that was seen Obadiah paint for us, was about to come. And if the kingdom was about to come, what else was about to come? It's the day of the Lord, isn't it? That's why they had to repent. 
The day of judgment for all the nations. And in a sense, that day of judgment came. And it came in the most surprising way. Think about it with me. Jesus was the opposite of Edom. Saw how the Edomites were proud. Jesus was humble and lowly in heart. We've seen how the Edomites trusted their defenses, their possessions, their friends. Jesus trusted his heavenly Father. The Edomites stood aloof when their brother was in trouble. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. The Edomites gloated over the fate of Jerusalem. Jesus wept when he prophesied the coming destruction of the city. The Edomites waited for Israel so they could kill them or hand them over to their enemies. But Jesus died for God's people to save them from their enemies of sin and death. Jesus was nothing like the Edomites. And yet he suffered the fate of Edom. Like Edom, he was betrayed by his own friend. Like Edom, he drank the cup of God's wrath. Like Edom, he was covered with shame and completely destroyed. Like Edom, he faced the awful punishment of God. The day of the Lord came for Jesus as he hung on the cross. That was his day of judgment. Not for his sin, but for ours. And on that day, God's punishment was just. Perfect justice was carried out. Retribution was made for every sin. As we have done, so it was done to him. And our deeds fell on his head. He drank and drank of the wrath of God and became as if he had never been. And yet in his death there was deliverance. Through his death came our salvation. Obadiah had said that deliverance was to be found at Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem. For on Zion God dwelt with his people. And from Zion he reigned over them through his king. And the New Testament tells us deliverance is to be found in Jesus. For in Jesus God dwells with his people. And through Jesus he reigns over us as king. So to come to Zion is to come to Him. To be in Zion is to be one of His people. But Jesus was also the deliverer, the Savior who, who went up to Zion to bring in the kingdom and rule the nations. And Luke tells us when the day drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem for whom? Because there he would die on the cross to experience the day of the Lord, to be the suffering servant, the King of the Jews. He went there to die, and he went there to rise again, to be declared Son of God in power. He was the glorious, triumphant King, to receive his kingdom as Son of Man. And he told his disciples to wait where? In Jerusalem, until he poured his Spirit upon them. And so beginning in Jerusalem, 
His gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins went out throughout the world so that all the nations would come under His rule. Friends, the Savior has gone up Mount Zion to rule the nations. The day of the Lord has come. The kingdom has come. And the kingdom is the Lord's. But there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is to come. And the day of the Lord is to come. For there is a final judgment in store that will make the judgment on Edom look like a picnic. For the day of the Lord is coming for all nations, for all people, for each individual. And what Obadiah says to you and to me is this. He says, don't be like Edom. Don't fool yourself into thinking the judgment will never happen. Today you may feel safe and secure like the Edomites did on the mountains. But tomorrow you will face God. Your defenses won't help you on that day. Your money won't help you on that day. Your friends can't help you on that day. Your leaders, the wise people, people you look up to, they won't help you. Your church won't help you on that day, even if it's Anglican. You may not have killed your brothers. You may not have ambushed God's people on the road. You may not have joined in the looting at the fall of Jerusalem. But God says to us, if we stand before God today with a kind of pride that says... God, I don't need you. Then like Edom, God will bring us down. And our destruction on that day will be complete. We will face an eternity of judgment and condemnation. The day of the Lord is near and God will just justly. As we have done, it will be done to us. Our deeds will return on our own heads and we will, we will drink and drink a cup of God's wrath and, and be as if we'd never been. And yet, friends, remember the alternative. There is deliverance to be found, a way to escape, a way that is open to whoever the Lord our God calls to Him. It is the same way for those who are church people as it is for those who seek to destroy the church of God. Or who, like Saul, the rabbi, were both at the same time. There's a way of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. For the evil that we so clearly see in others is actually symptomatic of the evil heart that we have in ourselves. But remember, salvation is found on Mount Zion in Jesus and all that he's done for us. In him and in him alone. That is our only hope for the day of the Lord. On that day the nations will be judged, but the people of God, those who are on Mount Zion, those who are in Christ, will be safe and secure. We will possess the land, the new heavens and new earth. Rule with our King forever. All evil will be banished all suffering and shame. God will reign and sin will be no more. And on that day, 
the prophecy of Obadiah will be completely fulfilled. The kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdoms of this world would have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, let me close with words from our New Testament reading from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirit of righteous faith perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this prophecy of Obadiah. We thank you that though it was written so long ago and under such different circumstances, you you continue to speak to us today through it. And, And Father, we know that the day of judgment is coming and so we pray for our friends, we pray for our families, we pray for those we serve, we pray for ourselves. Please help us and them to remember and to see that only in Jesus there will be safety on that day. And we pray that, that Jesus would be recognized and honored. We pray for those who seek to persecute your people, those who try to harm your people because they bear the name of Christ. Please be merciful to them and grant them repentance, we pray. But if not, please deal with them according to your justice. We pray that Christians would never be tempted to to try and take matters into our own hands and to seek revenge, but to leave room for you to act. We pray for ourselves. We pray that we would never be so prideful that we and we stop trusting Jesus and Him alone for our salvation. Help us to find our security in Him, and not in things that really don't last. And Lord, we pray that there are any among us who haven't yet come to Jesus for deliverance, that you would that you would grant them mercy today and bring them to repentance. We thank you, Father, for providing the place of deliverance. We 
thank you for the Lord Jesus who died for us on the cross to make it possible. Thank you that he drank the cup of wrath that we so richly deserved and took our place. And Father, in this world of strife, we look forward to the day when you bring about justice and deliver your people. And so we pray for your kingdom to come. And we pray in Jesus' name.